Good morning. So I think most everybody here um, knows me. Maybe some of the folks that are listening in or watching in may not know me. My name is Keith Thompson. My wife is Marcia Thompson. Our three kids have been members at Three Rivers for quite some time now, probably close to 10 years. And we're also uh, leaders of a radical life group, which is a great joy for us. Uh, small group ministry has always been a blessing to our family. We've been involved in that for a long time, and, and uh, we're thankful to be a part of that. But this morning, I have the privilege of leading us to consider a continued conversation about what are the marks of a healthy church. As you guys probably remember, we've been talking about evangelism, and we've looked at various aspects of evangelism. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. We've looked at what evangelism is so far. We've looked at um, how it is that we do evangelism as a church and as individuals. We've looked at maybe some barriers to evangelism. And this morning, we're going to look at an aspect of evangelism that, that is very important. We essentially, we call it as, in the church as assurance, assurance of salvation. Now, assurance simply means uh, certainty. It means, are you sure? Are you certain that your faith is, in fact, in Christ? And are you actually redeemed? Um, there is two kinds of assurance. There's true assurance, which this is the person who believes they're born again, and in fact they are born again. And then there's false assurance, which is definitely a, a very serious thought and something that we need to ponder this morning. It's, it's the thing that, that Paul is trying to challenge the Corinthians with as we look at the, second, uh, the, the letter that we have as a second Corinthians. Paul's saying to them, listen, make sure that your assurance is, is certain. Um, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians, so go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. But before we dive into that, we're going to read, um, we're going to read that entire chapter and focus in on one verse. But Paul's going to ask the Corinthians this morning um, the most important question ever asked of anyone, anywhere, at any time in all of human history. Um, and God is going to ask us that question this morning as well. So as we open up the word of scripture, we're going to hear Paul ask that question and by God's divine providence for all of us who are here and all of us who are listening in, God's also going to ask us that question. We have the privilege and the, the um, really the, the requirement to ask ourselves that question as well. But before we dive into uh, Corinthians, let's get a little bit of context. So what we have in our Bible is called 2 Corinthians. It's actually probably the fourth letter that Paul is going to write to Corinthians. Paul has this long history. Well, I say long history. It's about a five-year history with the Corinthian church, but he knows these people well. Paul arrived and would have arrived in Corinth, as we hear in Acts 18, sometime in the neighborhood of 50 AD. So this is about uh, 17 years or so after Christ has died and been resurrected. Paul has already taken the good news of Christ all the way out to Greece from Jerusalem, and he's interacting with a culture that's very, very different than the culture that he knew in, in um, where he grew up back in you know, Judah and Israel. So what you find in 50 AD in Corinth is a very modern city. If we could put ourselves into a time machine, whisk ourselves away to 2,000 years ago to the city of Corinth, and we'd walk out these doors, get onto the streets of Corinth, we would find a city, I think that would probably sur surprise a lot of us. It was a very modern city by those standards, the very complex system of roads. Uh, Corinth was located in the isthmus of Corinth, right between two seas. And as, as the, the nature of travel and commerce happens in between those two seas, Corinth was right in the middle. So there was trade that was happening from the east, from the west. It all passed right through Corinth, which was the reason it was a very strategic city, not only for God and for a church there, but also for the Roman government. 100 years before, although Corinth is a Greek city, it had been overtaken by Rome. So when you get to Rome, you see a very diverse people. There are Romans there. With all that the, the Roman history and the Roman worldview entails, there are Greeks there 
with the same um, history and worldview. And then there are even a, a strong representation from the Jews because we know Paul initially went into the Jewish synagogue when he was there. So you got this world, it's swirling around, all sorts of ideas, and the city was very, very religious. There was probably 500,000 people there, so about the size of Nashville, maybe two or three times the size of Chattanooga. There were people everywhere. The buildings would have been very impressive to us, even with our modern eyes. Stones, these massive structures that some of them are even partially still standing today. It was a very, very advanced, sophisticated city. Paul arrives in 50 AD. He begins to start a church with the help of Aquila and Priscilla. That church gets started, and the church is started, though, not like our world, where we have this rich history of Judeo-Christian world and background that we sort of believe in. There are certain things ethically that we believe. We don't really know why necessarily we believe them, but they really stand on the shoulders of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Paul would have arrived into a city that's very different. So when he shares the good news, the good news of Christ, it's these guys are really wrestling with and struggling with what does this mean for my old worldview you got people in the church from a greek background you got people in the church from a roman background and a jewish background and it's important to sort of if we picture ourselves in corinth at the time corinth is a is a, is a center of commerce so corinth is sort of the the uh, manhattan and wall street of their day 50 miles away you have the city of athens Athens is known for its philosophy and its arts so you got Corinth, which is uh, Wall Street. You got Athens, which is a representation maybe of Hollywood, University of California at Berkeley, MIT, Harvard. It's the academic center. All these interesting thoughts are happening. We, we know that Paul interacted with the folks at, in Athens and all the philosophers there. So the people in the church are wrestling with all these things, and they had lots of problems. Paul is addressing them. This is probably the, like I said, I think I said, the fourth letter that Paul writes to them. There's a letter he wrote before 1 Corinthians, then he writes 1 Corinthians, then there's this letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and then Paul is finally writing this letter, the fourth interaction with the people at Corinth, and he's addressing real problems with the people in Corinth. Primarily, he's dealing with sexual immorality in the church, not just in the world around them, but inside the church, they're struggling with sexual immorality. He's also dealing with relational issues. There's a lot of infighting. There are even doubts about whether or not Paul is legit. There's doubts of whether or not Paul is a legitimate apostle. Paul shows up there in 50, spends about two years with them from 50 to 52, and then he leaves. Well, while he's there, they recognize that Paul's kind of poor. He has to act as a tent maker while he's there. He's like beset with all these sufferings, all this stuff that's happening to him. And Paul, honestly, was not a very uh, impressive speaker. After Paul leaves, people pass through there like Apollos, people who are maybe wealthy, people who are successful, people who are very eloquent in what they have to say, and the people in Corinth begin to wonder, especially as Paul's interacting with them, sending all these harsh letters back to them because of their behavior, rebuking them, maybe Paul's not even legitimate. Maybe these other apostles who Paul calls the super apostles, maybe these other apostles are the ones that we should be listening to. Maybe we should be listening to Apollos, and maybe we should be listening to Peter. So as we, as we look at um, the chapter, I didn't even bring my Bible up here. Sorry. I've got, uh, I've got all these written out in here except for this chapter. So as we look at 2 Corinthians 13, what we want to note is this is the fourth correspondence. Paul has been there to start a church. He's been back. He's thinking about going again. And Paul feels like at this point in the game, his last comments to them is a stark and very um, stern warning. So let's go ahead um, and read in this chapter, uh, verse 13, 1 all the way through to the end. This is the third time I am coming to you, 
Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you know there's conflict in the church because Paul is having to tell him, look, in these conflicts, make sure they are witnesses. You guys don't, don't have these conflicts without, without making sure that they are witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he, has cruci- he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray before we begin. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord. Um, I feel the weightiness of these, this question that Paul has asked the Corinthians and that poses to us this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful with these words. Lord, I pray that your words would go forth by the power of your Spirit expressly into the hearts of these people who listen, into my heart in a way that would be life-transforming and changing, and Lord, that it would be to your glory and to our good. We ask all these things in Christ's holy and blessed name. Amen. So the text that we're going to focus on this morning is 2 Corinthians 13, verse, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, after all this history that Paul has with the Corinthian church and these people that he knew pretty well in the church, Paul is saying to these people in the church at Corinth, and he's pleading with them to examine themselves and to test themselves. Now, why should we examine or test ourselves? Well, human beings are, a, are a, um, not a very deep bunch. We, we have a tendency to not necessarily want to look inside of our own hearts. And even when we do look inside of our own hearts, we have a tendency to look in all the wrong places for the answers. Um, there's a proverb that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a very distinct possibility that we could be marching along in, our, along in our lives, think that we are on the right path and not be on the right path. We're fallen. We're broken. It's only by the Spirit of God who opens our eyes, opens the eyes of the blind, opens the ears of the deaf, that we are able to look out and see, hmm, I think I need something beyond me. And there's a sense in which we as believers, um, even inside the church, as we're listening to all the voices that are coming to us, even inside the evangelical church, can get wrong messaging. And so what Paul is saying, look, examine yourselves. 
And Paul has noticed, and he's looked at the lives of the Corinthians, and he's basically saying to them, listen, your lives are marked more by chaos and darkness than peace and light. It shouldn't be this way. Regardless of how you feel, you ought to take the time to look deep inside your own heart because Paul basically is saying to them, I'm about, I'm about to ask you a question that literally has infinite significance. So Paul's saying, he says it twice. He says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Well, we're going to examine ourselves. What does he want them to examine themselves based on? Based on what? What is this measuring tool? What is this standard? Well, the measuring tool is Scripture. Like I said before, there's all sorts of ideas that we can tap into, whether it's the, the latest book on the New York Times bestseller list, whether it's the latest article in, in Oprah's magazine or some other um, high-profile person that, that you've placed your trust in over the years. But the truth is, Scripture is our only hope. It's the mirror that Paul is describing. His, he say, basically what Paul is saying, examine yourselves based on what you find in the Scriptures. God has been kind enough to reveal to us how it is that a human being should live and can flourish flourish examine yourselves based on scripture deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14 and 19 say this is this is moses he's given his final command and final sort of attestation to the folks in israel as they're about to cross over into the jordan and finally take this promised land that god has been promised in them for several hundred years and this is what um this is what moses says to them what god says to them through moses for this command that i command you today it's not too hard for you neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you can do it. What Paul is saying, or Paul, what Moses is saying, what God is saying to these people is like, listen, this word is near you. It's not, it's not unachievable. This is, I know you guys have struggled in Corinth. You've struggled the entire time you've had a church there. You're in a world that's telling you all sorts of crazy stories. There's a temple there to Aphrodite with a thousand prostitutes. They believe there's no shame in their game. They believe they're doing the work of the gods in their prostitution. This is the world that these guys are beginning to buy into because it's so ever-present in their lives. What Moses is saying to the Israelites is, listen, this isn't too difficult for you. You can find the word. And then if we go to John 1:14, which is all the way fast forward 1400 years into the New Testament and we see this great continuation and consistency in the Word of God what Moses has said is near you and reachable and achievable this word that's in your heart and in your mouth John finally says in the very first chapter in the very beginning talking about Jesus now this same word that was near them this word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth this word that those guys in the in the promise or as they were going to take the promised land this word that was kind of out there they had seen the light they had seen the fire they had seen the smoke what john is telling us we have the opportunity now we know the word the word is christ our our example if we're going to examine ourselves the mirror that we need to see the mirror is Christ himself. Proverbs 1, 20 to 23 is discussing wisdom. Our wisdom is manifest in Christ. Wisdom, Christ is the wisdom of God. Proverbs 1, 20 to 23 says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Why does wisdom have to cry out? Because the city is busy. There's all this noise that we hear. The, the God, God is telling us through, through the Proverbs and through what John has said about Jesus, 
Listen, wisdom is crying out to us, and what wisdom says to us is, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. The God of the universe this morning is saying to us through his scripture and through his word, take this mirror of the scriptures and take a long look at yourself. Examine yourself. This mirror is the only measure of life. The only hope for satisfying that longing in you that simply will not go away. Well, is there an urgency? Yes, there is an urgency. That's why Paul says this. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. He's like saying, look, this is important. I'm going to throw it in there twice just in case you missed it the first time. Well, what is this urgency? Well, ultimately, we're going to examine ourselves because there is a day of judgment coming when the examiner is going to examine us. Paul said, examine yourselves because there is an examiner who one day you'll stand before and you'll have to give an account for the life that you've lived. Matthew 12, 34 to 37 says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We know this true about ourselves. Our heart produces certain things, certain things we wish we may, may not, wish we may not have said. But the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Revelation 20, 12 to 13 says, John's telling the vision that he's seeing in heaven of what's going to happen at the end of times. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then finally, Hebrews, which is filled with warnings about making sure that you persist in the faith. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. One of the greatest blessings about our faith, about being a Christian, is that we know how the story ends. God has given this incredible blessing to us. He said, listen, I know you're struggling right now, but let me tell you, there's an end game. This is how it's going to end. So now line up your life in a way that when you get there, you'll be happy about how things sort of ended. And we can know, we can know this, this, this idea of assurance and certainty of your salvation. There is a way in which we can be certain. We can know with, with certainty that we are uh, in the kingdom. So what is this, what is this um, examination going to reveal? And what is, what is the focus or the point of what Paul is getting at here? So examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So it's quite fashionable these days to be a person of faith. But the question is, are you a member of the faith? The question we are asking ourselves this morning is not, are you a person who has faith? But are you a person who has embraced the faith? The faith that actually is real. The faith that actually has the power to deliver and to deliver you from life's chaos and destruction and the destruction of the coming judgment that's going to happen one day. So Jude 3 um, says, or Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, Jude saying, look, I wanted to read, write to you about our common faith. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Which faith? 
that faith that was once and all, once for all delivered to the saints. It's this faith that was transcripted from old. Jesus helping us understand, look, there's lots of faith. There's lots of things that, that I want to talk to you about in the beginning of my letter, but I'm telling you, contend for that faith that has come to us through the saints because it's trying to be twisted. Um, we can't just embrace any old faith. I, when I think about this, um, this notion of just sort of choosing whatever and hoping it'll work out in the end, I think about Alice in Wonderland. And uh, Alice, as she is wandering around in this forest, she's lost. She really doesn't know where to go. She's in this strange world. And Alice um, encounters this cat with a grin on his face that we know as the Cheshire Cat. Alice says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? The Cheshire Cat says, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Alice says, well, I don't much care where. The Cheshire Cat says, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And then Alice says, well, so long as I get somewhere... And the Cheshire Cat says, oh, you're sure to do that if only you walk long enough. So here's, here's the truth. All of us are sure to find out if our faith is real. We will all walk long enough to find that out. If any old faith will do, the examination isn't necessary. But Paul makes sure we know that it is the faith that saves. He also wants us to know this morning that it's the faith found in the Scriptures that can only be known through digging and digging and reading and reading and making it something that's con something that is a part of your life like everyday life not just your church life but it's it's something that you have to dig into as we try to examine ourselves well this next section is the really really the crux of the verse and so what does this faith look like what is the faith what is the distinguishing characteristic of the faith examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is in us? This is sort of the crux. It's the hub of the wheel, so to speak. This notion of Jesus Christ being in us, the notion of us being in Jesus Christ, this is um, sort of the mic drop moment. And I, I thought about doing it, but they, I, I'd break their mic. He said, we, we thought about getting a fake mic up here so that we, occasionally we could actually have a real mic drop movement, moment. But the truth is, this is, this is very significant. I think about, when I think about these people who are struggling with their faith, and, you know, Paul sort of, he's taught these people for two years, he sent all these letters back and forth, he's had all this correspondence from them, and he goes, Did you, you guys remember now that Christ Jesus is, is in you. It's like showing up on a sideline on a Friday night in a high school football game, and you stand beside the coach who's getting beat 50 to nothing in the third quarter, and you look over at the bench and you go, Coach! Do you not realize that Saquon Barkley is with you? Why don't you put him in the game? Well, if you guys don't know who Saquon Barkley is, Saquon Barkley is probably the best running back in the NFL right now. He's, like, incredible. <laughs> the, the notion of a high school football coach having Saquon on the bench and not putting him in the game, even though they're getting beat 50 to nothing, is just ridiculous. The notion that these guys could live this way over time, over a period of five years, and have all this bickering and have Christ Jesus in them is ridiculous. That's why Paul follows it up with, well, that is indeed if you haven't failed the test. What does it mean to have Christ Jesus in you? Peace with God and newness of life. What is this new life? What is the peace with God and how is it achieved? The Spirit of God, through Paul, is testifying to us this morning. It was testifying to the Corinthian church back in 55 A.D., 
through repetition and a, and a consistent theme that presses home the message of verse 5 and the rest of Paul's letter. And it's this, that it, without Christ, there, we are without hope in the world. Let's take a look at Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 2 to 4 says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let that sink in a little bit. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What Paul is trying to say is there is an, active, um, an act of the will it's almost as if we crawl up, crawl up to the cross. We grab Jesus' ankles and we climb up and we get on top of him and we, we nail ourselves to the cross with him. This, this act of dying with Christ so that we can be raised with Christ is an act of the will. It's something that we have to do in real time, in real space. Many of us, like me, I, I walked the aisle as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, gave my life, asked Jesus into my heart. I did it again in in uh, vacation Bible school when I was about 12. I remember I walked straight to my grandmother's house. We knelt at a chair in her home and we prayed. I don't know when God saved me. I know that there were times in there where it got pretty rocky. If you'd have looked at my life, you'd have said, hmm, I'm not sure that took. The point is that this, this faith is real. It's something that happens. It's a real transaction in space and time. And it has to do with dying first so that you can be raised with Christ. Romans 6, 5-8 goes on and says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. I mean, that's, that's glorious. But the death comes before the resurrection. You don't get the resurrection without the death. When you're baptized, you don't just get in the tub and then get out. No, they have to dunk you. They have to put you underwater and then pull you out of the water. Because it signifies this newness of life when you come up. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. A change has taken place. A behavior, behavioral change has taken place. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all once lived. In the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were, back then, before we died with Christ, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is, again, this is something that's very important. There is a real, actual transaction that happens when we give our life to Christ. There are four things I want to note about this real quickly about these, these passages I just read to us about Christ being in Christ, what theologians call union with Christ. Those of us who, are, who are, have faith in Christ, we've been unified with him in a way in which God looks at us and he sees Christ. This, trans, this um, transaction is a miracle. 
It's not just some idea. It's not just this some notion that we are going to pull ourselves by our bootstraps and sort of gain, you know, jump in with this sort of way. No, no, this is a miracle. God literally has raised human beings who were dead spiritually. He's raised us to life. And with that life comes, um, it comes a change of what, the way we see the world. It's important to know that born-again people <clears throat> are literally born again. Born-again people, it's, uh, our, our faith is not so much about what we do. It's about who we are. It's a matter of being, not doing. Christ literally looks at us when we're born again and sees something different. He sees the person that we can be, not the person who we used to be. And this thing is an embracing of a worldview. It's not a one-time decision that we make. We continually make the decision to be born again every single day of our lives. We place our faith in Christ. And this worldview changes the way we see the world. It literally changes the way we see ethical decisions. It affects our marriages. It affects our dating relationships. It affects our uh, decisions about what we're going to do when we wake up and when we go to bed. We don't see the world the way a lost person does. And then finally, it's permanent. This decision, this, this notion of assurance, can you be sure that you're born again? Yes, we can. And once we decide, and once God moves us from the category of wrath to a category of air, it'll never go away. No one can take us out of the hand of God. John 6, 39 to 40 says, And this, Jesus is speaking, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I will raise Him up on the last day. It's certain. Absolutely certain. The question is, have you passed the test? As we examine ourselves, the question is, have you placed your trust, all of it? There's no Jesus basket and career basket and relationship basket all the eggs all the eggs are in Jesus' basket and we got to be okay with that i'm reminded of abraham he takes his the promise the son of promise to the top of the hill there was no second alternative abraham believed that if he killed isaac god would raise him from the dead period that's the kind of trust that we're talking about when we talk about placing our faith in christ and being able to be sure that we didn't fail the test. We've read these verses in the last several weeks in this church, and I'm going to read them again, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, some of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now let that soak in for a moment. The person who hears these words will have just heard the most tragic words ever uttered in the English language. Really, there, there's nothing worse that you could ever hear. And so the word of the Lord comes to us this morning, by his, again, by his providence, as we've opened up this, this, these scriptures. And he says to us, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Salvation and kingdom citizenship is a miracle, and it's not based on our work. It's based on Christ's person and Christ's work. No doubt. It is not based on our doing, but on who we are in Christ. But, 
Jesus' words in Matthew 15 to 20, the verses right before he tells the story about the person that Jesus says, I don't know you. Right before those verses, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. How can we know? How can we know? What is the outer manifestation of a person who has been raised with Christ? It's a pattern of living that produces good fruit. We're not saying that Christians don't fail. We're not saying that Christians even run through seasons, maybe, of struggles. No, that's, that is not the point. But we can't deny this language in the Scriptures that says people who are born again, people who have alive eyes as opposed to people who have dead eyes and can't see, their, their lives are different. They see the world differently. It, it motivates because, because of the way they see the world, it motivates different behavior. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, the works of the flesh can be seen. They can be observed. There, there's evidence. What is the evidence? The evidence of the works of the flesh is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Jesus says, as I warned you before, I'm sorry, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does this mean that you're lost if you ever had a sensual thought? No. Does this mean you're lost if you've ever had a fit of anger? No. The point is, there is this fruit that is consistently produced in your life. If this fruit is consistent with these, this list Flags ought to be flying up in our lives. And then immediately after that, Galatians 5, to 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I can't stand before you today and tell you that, that um, my, because my family's here, <laughs> that, I, that I'm always patient or kind. Um. We all have to examine ourselves. Only you know in your heart where you stand and where you are before the Lord. But what the scriptures say to us is we ought to see this pattern of improvement over time. So we are being encouraged by the Spirit of God this morning through the mirror of scripture to ask ourselves, does my life represent a life that is lived out in a pattern of trusting God, rejoicing in his glory, and consistent with behavior that resembles the fruit of the Spirit? Does my life represent a resurrected heart or a spiritually dead heart? What's the condition of your heart? Are you at peace with God? Do you stand subject to the coming wrath? Or do you gloriously stand as an heir with Christ, waiting for all the blessings that are to come? These answers to, the answers to those questions represent the most important reality that you'll ever consider in life. So in summary... The human heart leans toward the unexamined life. It's our nature to not have to deal with things that are deep. 
And like I said, even when we do go deep, we have, a, we have a tendency to look in all the wrong places for the answers. But the word of the Lord has come to us this morning and said, examine yourself. Test yourself. Look into the mirror of Scripture and sincerely ask yourself the question, is my heart and hope completely and utterly resting in Christ alone? The world has a lot to offer us to satisfy the greatest longings of our hearts. But you can settle that today. You can settle it today, and you can settle it going forward. If you have questions or if you have concerns, feel free to speak with me. Find elders here, and we can put this to rest. Christ will come with certainty, and he'll never lose you. So I want to leave us with the words of David in Psalm 33, and then, and then pray. For the Lord looks down from heaven, and he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, and he observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, and because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for the absolute um, blessing of your word. God, thank you that you have given us a, a way in which we can understand this life and make sense of the madness and the chaos. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth in us, that it would change us, that it would literally give us the ability to obey. That is our prayer. We know that we are hopeless without you. Lord, I pray that this... Um, that we would move forward in this day in your grace and in your mercy and that we would live our lives in a way that would glorify you and be good to us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.